This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Open up your Bibles or your devices and look at Acts chapter 6. Now, if you are new here or perhaps a guest, I just want to let you know that we're going through, kind of just teaching straight through the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the account, the historical account of the early church. So it's what happened after Jesus died and was buried, then rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. What happened after he left? It's the account of his early followers, the apostles, uh, sharing his message, communicating what he did, and then the Holy Spirit, which is God's presence, saving people and building them together as a church. So it's the story of the first church of the first century. And today, we're in Acts 6. We're just going to have a shorter section today, verses 1 through 7. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the life we find in your word. Lord, these are, uh, though a historical account, it's much more than a historical account. It's, it's your living, breathing word. And we pray today that you would speak to us through this word. We believe you have something for us as a church gathered here today. And so we ask you to speak to us, to teach us, to direct us, to change us through your scripture. We ask that you would do this and give us hearts to hear, to respond, ears to hear. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with strength, fill me with your spirit, to proclaim your word, to build up uh, the people of God gathered here. Lord, reveal yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what's been happening as we trace the book of Acts is that the church has been growing and progressing, and the enemy, Satan, has been resisting. And there appears to be several ways that he has resisted the church. Uh, he's only mentioned by name very clearly uh, in the fifth chapter, but we see places and ways that he is resisting the growth of the church. The first way is through just intimidation. And so the early apostles and leaders have been arrested uh, on two occasions by this point. They've been intimidated and threatened, and once they've been beaten, 
and uh, let go before preaching in the name of Jesus. There is, there is this onslaught of physical intimidation and persecution that's come against the church. Secondly, there has been a temptation towards hypocrisy to infiltrate the church early on. So there's this account of somebody named Ananias and Sapphira who come to church and they lie about this donation. They're living a hypocritical life. The passage doesn't tell us whether they're Christians or not, but they are hypocrites and God actually strikes them dead in the church service and the fear of God falls upon everyone. So there is this this temptation to hypocrisy that it sought to infiltrate the church, but the church has continued on. Neither one of those have stopped it. In the passage that we just read, it seems like there's another temptation that the enemy brings to the church, and that is the temptation to division. Division. It is the enemy's plan in every church, in every gathering of people who believe in Jesus Christ, to divide and conquer. To divide and conquer. And that seems to be what is going on here. And division among God's people can start in the smallest of ways. Kent Hughes, a pastor who wrote uh, about this very chapter, Acts 6, introduced his uh, account of his commentary on Acts 6 with this story. He said, when a certain Dallas church decided to split, and this evidently happened back in the 70s, so I don't think any of us know what's being talked about here, Uh, but he says, when a certain Dallas church decided to split, each faction filed a lawsuit to claim the church property. A judge finally referred the matter to the higher authorities in the particular denomination. A church court assembled to hear both sides of the case and awarded the church property to one of the two factions. The losers withdrew and formed another church in the area. During the hearing, the church courts learned that the conflict had all begun at a church dinner, when a certain elder received a smaller slice of ham than a child seated next to him. If we have a church dinner, please do not serve Rob a small slice of ham. (laughs) We do not want this church split over ham. Sadly, this was reported in the newspapers for everyone to read. Just imagine how the people of Dallas laughed about the situation. This brought great discredit not only to the church, but to Jesus Christ. The tiniest events sometimes cause great problems. Again and again, a church has warded off a frontal attack only to be subverted from within. Acts 6 shows us Satan trying to disrupt the inward peace of the early church. Wonderful things were happening as the new church grew by leaps and bounds. 3,000 received Christ at Pentecost. Another 2,000 were added shortly after. Acts 5 tells us that many more were then added to the church. Satan, unhappy about God's successes, sowed a spirit of murmuring and gossip among God's people, hoping to set believer against believer. And he concludes, countless works for God have been destroyed in this way. In the passage we're going to study today, we see a potential, a potential schism, a potential rupture, a potential fracture in the church. But what the Lord does is He protects His church, 
and actually unifies and strengthens his church when they face a potential challenge that could have had a devastating effect. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to outline this passage this way. This is an outline that I learned from John Stott. I thought it was just very simple and very helpful. So the message is not from him. The points of outline are. Uh, So I want to do that because I think it's helpful. First of all, I want to talk about the problem of Acts 6. I want to talk about the solution. I want to talk about the result after the solution. And lastly, I want to talk about principles that we can learn from this passage. So first of all, the problem that is presented. Here's the context of Acts 6. Look at verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the context for the problem is church growth. And not just generic church growth, healthy church growth. You'll notice that Luke records they were increasing in number the disciples. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. They weren't gathering admirers of Jesus. They weren't gathering attenders to a church meeting. They were gathering people that were following Jesus, and they were following Jesus under great threat and great cost, for the church was being persecuted. The last thing that happens in the chapter before this is that the leaders, the apostles, are beaten for their faith, beaten severely because they're preaching the gospel. So those who are joining them are those who are counting the cost. When there's an environment of persecution, it costs something to follow Jesus. It costs something, not just, well, it was hard to find a parking place and I had to walk an extra 25 feet. Not that, but the threat that if I join these people as a disciple of Jesus, I may find myself, I may find myself under the attack uh, of the authorities, I could be arrested. Something harmful could happen to me. So it's a healthy growth. People who really believe in Jesus and are willing to take a risk in following him. Not only that, but we see that the growth brings problems. We all like to be a part of something that is growing, especially a church where new life is occurring and new people are being added. That is a, that is a wonderful thing, especially revival growth like we read here, which is true growth. People really being saved and added to the church on a regular basis. But even with healthy revival, Holy Spirit-inspired growth, there are challenges in the church. As a matter of fact... There were swatches of time in Acts 2 when it seems like it was heaven on earth and we don't read much about problems. Acts 2, 42 through 47, we get this description of the church that seems heavenly, like heaven on earth. So there are these times when there is no persecution from without, uh, minimal hypocrisy from within, and no division happening. There are these times. But most of what happens in the church from this point forward is we just read of church problems in the book of Acts. And we see that as the New Testament is written, most of the letters are written in contexts where there are challenges among the church. Well, a challenge rises in this church as well. In verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The word complaint, it's a, they, they raise a complaint. It's probably not a formal charge because the word complaint signifies, one way of defining it is displeasure expressed through murmuring. Displeasure expressed through 
murmuring. Probably what is happening is this one group of Christians, the Hellenists, they are privately complaining. They're privately expressing their discontent and their displeasure. They are spreading that in various ways. And it is raised against another group. If you'll notice, it says the complaint is the Hellenist against the Hebrews. Now, the reason for the complaint is a serious issue. It's not over a slice of ham. It's over a very serious issue. And that is that the Hellenists' widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. So food was distributed, and they are being skipped over and neglected in some way. So it's a very serious charge. Now, who are these groups of people, these Hellenists and these Hebrews? Well, they are converted Jews who have joined the church, but they bring with them a culture, like everyone. They bring a background. They bring a way of living, a way of thinking, a lifestyle. And there's two groups. The Hebrews are those who were from a Jewish background who lived, who grew up and lived in the nation of Israel. They spoke Aramaic. Um, they, uh, they would have known Greek as well because that was the trade language of the Roman Empire. But likely their primary language would have been Aramaic. And they were what you probably think of when you think of a, a Jew, a, a first century Jew in Israel. And these Jews had been converted to believing in Jesus. The other group is called the Hellenists. They were Greek in culture and Greek speaking. So they came from outside of Israel. They were people that lived in other nations and had relocated uh, to Israel. And actually they had separate synagogues for Hellenists and Hebrews. There were Greek speaking and Aramaic speaking synagogues for worship as well in Israel. This could have potentially even been the case in the church. Uh, this is a large church by this point. They're not all meeting in a single building. They meet, we read, they meet from house to house. So there may have been sort of house churches uh, that some of them may have been Greek-speaking, some Aramaic-speaking. It doesn't tell us for sure right here. Uh, but they were two groups of people with different backgrounds and different thoughts. The, the, the Greek Jews had a different mindset. They had the same religion, the same God, but a different culture than the Hebrews in this passage. And so they bring these different cultures together and uh, are now joined together in Jesus. It's also possible that there was a disproportionate number of Hellenist widows. If you lived in a nation outside of Israel and became widowed, uh, you were dependent on in essence, foreigners, uh, the Jews among you, but you may have been a minority in the culture and were dependent on uh, that small group of people to take care of you. So a widow didn't have social services from the government. A widow didn't have a way to earn a living. And so widows were needy people. So many of them moved into Israel. And if you really wanted to move in, you move into Jerusalem, which is a large city with many uh, Jews and a temple and a place to receive help. So there may have been a number of Greek-speaking uh, widows, these Hellenists. And so what happens here is potentially a really big deal. You have two groups of people with different backgrounds that have become Christians and are now together joined in this young, fledgling church, and one group has a complaint against the other group. And it's not just any complaint. It's that the most vulnerable people of our group are being overlooked. 
The most vulnerable people, the widows, along with orphans, are the two most vulnerable, needy, defenseless people mentioned in the Bible. And Israel was called, as was the church, to take care of widows and orphans. As a matter of fact, James is going to call that pure and undefiled religion, to care for widows and orphans. So they're not just saying we're opposed to the Hebrews. They're saying the Hebrews are skipping over our needy, our destitute are vulnerable. They don't just have a different point of view. They're not caring for our most desperate folks. Now, what makes this more complicated is that the apostles were not Hellenists. They were part of the Hebrews. So you can see the potential division and problem here. Back in Acts 4.34, we read that there was not a needy person among the church. Wonderful, not a needy person. There is by chapter 6, but by chapter 4, there's not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to any as he had need. So do you see the problem here? Here are the Greeks saying to the Hebrews, I mean, this is, this is lining out to be quite a headline. It's quite a sensational headline. The Hellenists saying, the Hebrew Christians, uh, they don't take care. They ignore. They overlook our widows. And who happens to be a part of the Hebrew Christians? The apostles who are receiving all of the donations. So the apostles are receiving the donations and distributing it to any as had need. And yet our widows are over Looked, Greek widows, you can see the headline, Greek widows are neglected by the apostles in power who happen to be of the Hebrews group. It's not just a charge against the apostles, it's this whole group of people. So you can see how there's a potential for rupture in the church at this early stage. It's potential to have a devastating fight with, at the middle of it all, this vulnerable group of people and... At the top of it all, the apostles who were responsible to distribute food according to Acts chapter 4. That's the problem. So what's the solution? Well, first of all, let's note that the twelve, the apostles, don't ignore the problem. They don't ignore the problem. It says that the twelve, verse 2, summoned the full number of disciples and said. They don't ignore it. They don't blame shift. They don't say, hey, this is someone else's problem. We assign so-and-so to do that, which probably is the case. I mean, they don't own it as if they personally were walking around with food and saying, oh, you're Greek, skip you. Oh, you're Hebrew, give you food. Uh, They don't own it as if they were personally, willfully doing this. But they do take responsibility because they are the leaders. They take responsibility. They don't blame. They don't point fingers. They don't exacerbate this by saying, oh, the widows, are they complaining again? And what do they want, like food to live or something? I mean, they're not exacerbating the problem in any way because that could have caused great offense. Rather, they pulled the people together and they explained it would not be right for us to stop preaching and start serving tables. That wouldn't be the right thing to do not because they are above that not because they are above serving tables but because they have a call from the Lord to be witnesses to the resurrection and to preach the good news to those who need him so they're saying if we do that it would it would not be right 
They're later going to say we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and the Word. If we do that, we'll have less sermons, less preaching, less gospel announcement, less testimony and witnessing, less teaching to build up the church, and we'll have worse teaching, worse preaching, because we won't be giving attention to it. We'll just sort of be flying by the seat of our pants or something. So it would affect how the church is taught and how evangelism takes place, and also it would be a monopolizing of ministry. They'd be saying, okay, we're going to do the teaching, and we're going to be caring for the widows. We'll just do it all. So they don't want to monopolize the ministry. They don't want to minimize the importance of the proclaimed word. And so they come up with a solution. What they do is they say, uh, look at your passage there, verse 2, or verse 3, rather. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose, and it goes off and gives the seven men that they chose. So, what do they do? They they say to the people, you select seven men among you that can give themselves to this serving tables, this food distribution, oversee this. You pick seven men among yourselves. And they don't just say, pick anyone. They don't say, if, if they got a pulse and a pickup, have them deliver the food to the widows. But rather, they, they put qualifications on the kind of people that should be considered. First of all, they must be of good repute. That is, select people that have a stellar reputation, men of integrity. Why? Because they're handling money. They're taking the donations that were made, and evidently they are buying food with that and then distributing food. So it can't be someone that's dishonest, that would steal food, that would keep a little for you, a little for me. It can't be that kind of a guy. Um, It needs to be somebody with a good reputation. It needs to be someone who's known for their integrity, known probably for their leadership, because seven guys probably weren't doing the whole thing. They were probably working with others, leading others, managing others, delegating to others. So they were probably overseeing this process and doing it themselves at the same time, this mercy ministry of caring for the widows. So they needed to have a stellar reputation. Uh, Secondly, they needed to be full of the Spirit. Now, when we think of people being full of the Spirit, we don't usually think of food distribution. We typically think that if someone preaches, they should be full of the Spirit. Please pray that the preachers here will be full of the Spirit when we declare God's Word. Or we think, and we see this earlier in Acts, that we need to be empowered and full of the Spirit if we're witnessing, sharing our faith. Someone who's going to witness needs to be bold and filled with the Spirit. Yes! Or you see the apostles laying their hands on the sick and people getting healed. God is healing people through their prayers, full of the Spirit, spiritual gifts. In Acts 2, they speak in tongues, they prophesy. There are these gifts being used. Yes, full of the Spirit. We tend to think that way. But delivering food, do we really need to be full of the Spirit? Absolutely. Because every act of service in the body of Christ is a ministry of Christ caring for His people through His people. We we sang this morning about being His hands and His feet. We're not just a social club or a charity organization. We're the body of Christ. And when we serve one another in any way, it is an expression of God meeting the needs of His people through His people. Thus, we need to be filled with the Spirit. 
I don't care what we're doing in the church. We need to be people who the, the fruit of the Spirit is on display. God's working through us, producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. We need to be empowered with spiritual gifts. We need God to, to direct our hearts, to give us faith, to embolden us. No matter what we're doing in service, building up the body of Christ is the work of the Spirit. So we don't say, well, the preacher needs to be filled with the Spirit. The person praying for the sick needs to be filled with the Spirit. The person evangelizing and sharing their faith with an unbeliever needs to be filled with the Spirit. But I'm just handing out food. I'll do that in the flesh, thank you. That's not what the Scripture teaches. They're looking for men who are known. Is he known to be full of the Spirit? Is the character of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit on display in him? Are the gifts of the Spirit on display in his life? Not just dramatic gifts, but gifts of administration and mercy and leadership and various other spiritual gifts as well. And then lastly, it says that they should be men full of wisdom. They need to be men of compassion, but they also need to have wisdom. If mercy ministry is led by people with compassionate hearts who lack wisdom, then what happens is by the time we get to the end of the line, the food's run out because the tender heart has delivered it all to the first person with need. And uh, so there needs to be wisdom, someone who knows when to say yes, who knows when to say no, who knows how to counsel and bring clarity when two people are at odds over what they're receiving. I'm not speaking here about the widows, but I'm talking in general. Mercy ministry uh, is complex, and mercy ministry uh, involves people in need, broken people. And so it involves wisdom in knowing how to provide care and how to express the heart of the Lord to people. So they need to be full of the Spirit. They need to be men of good reputation. They need to be men full of wisdom. So the choosing of the seven enables the apostles to remain devoted to prayer in the ministry of the word. That's the next verse, verse four. But we, the apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. Everybody is happy about this. I find that miraculous. I I think there is a miracle in the midst of this. And I think it's that everybody liked what they said. I mean, seriously, everybody liked that the apostles got up and said, you know, we're going to delegate this responsibility and we're going to be praying for you, with you, among you. We're going to be teaching God's word. And everybody liked that. We'll be studying and we will be preaching. I just think it's miraculous that nobody raised their hand and said, excuse me, you mean to tell me that Jesus washed people's feet, but you're too good to take food to the widows? I'm just surprised that nobody thought that or said that. But they understood that there was a division of service here. They were going to serve in different ways. One wasn't better than the other. One wasn't more holy than the other. One wasn't more pleasing to God than the other. But they were both going to serve. And I think it took a lot of the courage, a lot of faith and courage for the apostles to bring this. Because what the apostles are saying is they're saying we're going to stay true and we're going to answer to God. We're going to stay true to the calling he has placed on our life, which is to be witnesses to the resurrection. And so we are going to devote our time and devote our energy to that. That is humility. Because what they are saying is we fear the Lord and we're not going to worry about what everybody thinks about this. 
I mean, I, I wouldn't. Would you want to stand up and make the announcement, uh, hey, I won't be coming to any widow's houses, won't be distributing food, won't be paying a visit to deliver food, I'll be praying. Really? You want to make that announcement? I'll be studying the Word and teaching. Now, obviously, they prayed for widows, they met widows, they pastored widows in various ways, but what they're saying is, I won't on a daily basis be in the food distribution ministry. I'll be doing something different, not because I'm better, but because God has called us to do this. It took faith to stay the course and do what God had called them to do. And it took grace for people to embrace what was being told and to reach out and serve in this way. So what happens is, everybody's pleased, they choose seven men, and here's the interesting thing, all seven of them have Greek names. So they are, here we have, I don't know how the decision was made. Was this just the Greeks, the Hellenists that made this decision? Was it the Hellenists and Hebrews combined? It's not altogether clear on that. But they, they select seven names of people uh, with Greek names. So there's now this release of new leaders into the church that are representing uh, this group of folks. And we find two of them at the front of the list are going to be notable in the book of Acts. First one is Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, we will, uh, the next passage will pick up Stephen, and we'll see that he did more. Uh, he did additional things besides uh, distributing food. He is ultimately arrested, and he's going to be killed. He's the first recorded martyr in the early church. Also, Philip, uh, he's the second one mentioned. Philip's an evangelist in Samaria. Philip's the guy who's going to lead the eunuch to the Lord. Philip's going to preach the gospel to the eunuch, and then he's going to baptize him and then disappear into thin air and show up at another place, which probably qualified you to be one of the seven, but that happened after he was chosen as the seven, most likely to disappear and be transported by the Spirit. Let's vote for Philip. So he gets voted in or selected. We don't know how they get in, but they're selected. So the seven people are selected, and after they are selected, what happens? Verse 6, they set before the apostles. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So the apostles approved. They lay their hands on them, and they commission them. In the New Testament, there are a number of cases where people lay hands on folks and pray. One would be for healing. Uh, people have hands laid on them and are prayed for for healing. Another in the book of Acts, we see a number of instances where people have hands laid on them and the Spirit is imparted to them. They prayed for them to be empowered by the Spirit. Another way is through the laying on of hands is a commissioning. We see that happens to Timothy, uh, that the presbyters, the elders in, in his area laid hands upon him. So this laying on of the hands is a commissioning, an installing, an endorsing, a formal public delegating, however you want to say it. But they approve, they lay hands on them, and uh, they turn them loose to uh, feed the, the uh, widows, the Greek widows. So that's the solution. The problem, a potential division, actual a division in the church that could have gone really badly. And then the solution was the apostles continue to do what they're doing, and to delegate the responsibility to seven others. And then here is the result. Let me say this about church problems. What, what is happening here is God is working through a church problem, which is the theme of the entire New Testament. There's not a letter of the New Testament that doesn't address some kind of bad behavior, some kind of 
false doctrine, some kind of power play among people, that there's not a letter of the New Testament that it somewhere doesn't bring some correction to church problems. And so it starts here, it continues throughout the New Testament, and God works in the middle of church problems. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell have n- are not prevailing through external persecution. The gates of hell are not prevailing through the temptation to hypocrisy. The gates of hell are not winning over, in this case, this temptation towards division. God uses those things. They are at the risk of sounding like a faith preacher, at the risk of sounding like a self-help guru, I want to say that problems in the New Testament are an opportunity. They're an opportunity for God to show himself strong, for God to create uh, an answer, for God to work so that the church is more holy than before the problem, so that the church is more powerful than before the problem, the church is more unified, the church reflects Jesus more after the problem, having walked through the problem, which is an opportunity, than they did before it ever came along. That's how God builds His church. Look at what happens here. What happens with this problem? The widows get cared for. Those who are near and dear to the heart of God receive the care they need. Yes, there was a complaint. Yes, there was murmuring. But look what God did. God provided care. The mission of caring for the needy, of building up the body of Christ, continues on in a way that it wasn't continuing, that it wasn't happening prior to chapter 6. The widows receive their care. What else happens? New leaders are deployed. God takes the problem and releases new leaders. Maybe, maybe creates a new office if these are deacons. We'll talk about that in a minute. But if they are deacons, a new office of leadership in the church emerges because of the problem. Look what else happens. A fracture is avoided and the church is unified. The church, everyone likes the solution and what is said. It moves from murmuring, the two parties against each other, to everyone saying, this is good. This is great. Let's select these guys. Prayed for. They're installed. Wonderful. So the church is unified. It goes from raising a complaint, raising a complaint to what they said pleased the whole gathering. A disunified people to a pleased people. Unity happens through a problem. The the apostles focus on the word and prayer they, they give themselves to the Word and prayer because of this. They, they freshly are committed to that, and that's announced, and everybody's clear on what they're supposed to be doing. That happened through a problem. And the church reaches more people. More folks are reached because of this. Look at verse 7. And the Word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The Word of God continues to increase. Why? Because the apostles are giving themselves to prayer and the Word They continue to teach the Word of God, which increases in the church 
the aspect of the mission of maturing the church and outside the church, the act of going and preaching so that the disciples multiply in verse 7. The church matures and disciples are multiplied. That's what happens when people who are called devote themselves to prayer and the Word and they communicate that to the church. And I think it's important to note that they probably the prayer they were involved in was not only private prayer. The apostles, or we could say elders and pastors as well, are not just given to private prayer, though that's important, but they are also given and called to pray with people. We see there's prayer meetings in the book of Acts. Chapter 4, the, uh, the apostles, Peter and John, are freed. They show up at a prayer meeting. They pray with the people. They're crying out together. That's an important part of the leader's role, is to be a part of praying with the people of God. The Spirit pours out. The, is, the room is shaken. You know the story from Acts chapter 4. And they also prayed for people. We see people receiving healings in the book of Acts. That's because the apostles are, and others, but the apostles are praying for people. So this prayer is praying privately to God. There's examples of praying with people. There's examples of praying for people. So the Word of God continues to increase in the church. It continues to increase outside where the gospel is announced, and disciples are multiplying. The church continues on the outward mission without solely being focused on the inner debate. Now, the inner debate, God is using that, and He is building something in the church. But if they just gave themselves to the inner debate, and the apostles stopped proclaiming the Word, then the external growth of the church would cease, and there would not be a multiplication of disciples. Because the Word isn't going forth. They're just debating. Or, if they did not do the Word service, the service of the Word, and they just said, oh, what's everybody going to think of us? I guess we should go uh, do all the table service. Then the Word of God wouldn't have increased externally so that disciples were multiplied. Servants are serving. The church is one and testifies to the grace of God. It's a picture of Jesus at work in His church, building His church through challenges, in spite of challenges. He is at work, and the result is that the Word of God increases, the church is unified, and disciples are multiplied outside the church. In fact, some of the least likely people come to faith, the priests. The church has been, uh, ha- the church has been persecuted by the religious establishment. But here we see in chapter 6 the religious establishment coming to Christ. They in some ways are some of the least likely people to come to Christ. They are opposed. The, the high priest, the Sanhedrin, is opposed to Christ and this church, this new church. And yet here we have some of the least likely coming to faith. This is the prayer for our church and for our city, that the Word of God would increase within and outside of the church, and that disciples would be multiplied, and that the least likely would come to faith, whether they are the religious who are trusting in their religion, or the irreligious who have no care for God whatsoever, but the least likely people coming to faith. That is our prayer. That's what happens in Acts 6. What are the principles? That's the result. What are the principles we can draw from this? First of all, I want to say something about church polity. It's a word that we've been talking about a lot in our church recently. The word just means governance. But church polity is built on biblical principle and not detailed processes that are outlined for us in Scripture. Church polity, church governance, is built on 
biblical principle, biblical themes, and not some laid out very specific processes. And here's what I mean by that, and here's why I'm taking this opportunity to say this. Because some people think what is happening in Acts 6 is the creation of the diaconate. That is, the office of deacon is, is coming into existence. In the New Testament, there are two kind of offices for leadership governance in the church. One is, is elders or pastors or, or overseers or shepherds. Uh, they're all synonymous. It's a group of people who have to meet a certain qualification and have to have certain gifting and lead oversee, govern, teach, equip, protect, serve, care, counsel, the various things that shepherds do for the church, pastors do. That is one group, and that is a word-oriented. Whether it's public proclamation or private counsel, it is a word-driven uh, ministry, a service of the word. The other is more practical service, if we could say it that way, not that service of the word is impractical by any means, but we could say that way. They're serving tables here, for instance. So the deacon is an office of those who are given to various kinds of service. They must also meet character qualifications, as we see in 1 Timothy 3. They are not a teaching role. They don't have to be gifted to teach uh, as the elders do. They're contrasted in that passage in 1 Timothy 3. Now, in the New Testament, we get a fair description of what the deacon is to be like, but we get no description of what they're to do. The word means serve. So it's an office of serving. We know they serve. They're given to serving. They probably coordinate and administrate service for others. So is this the, is this the creation of deacons? Some are so confident in it that I've read some commentaries and some other books where they just put the word deacon in. And they basically say, and so the deacons, the seven deacons, I mean, they're just that confident. Yet... The word is never used here. Specifically, they're not called deacons at all in this passage. As a matter of fact, Stephen and Philip go on to do things that aren't necessarily diaconate kind of things that we tend to think about. They are preaching and uh, using a teaching gift as well in their evangelism, Philip and his evangelism. So I think what's important to note here, this is a great case study for polity. We get office, the office of deacon elsewhere, and we get very clear character qualifications, but we don't get exactly what they do. And if we try to press this in a mold and say, okay, this is exactly what deacons do, it leaves us with a lot of strange stuff, frankly, if we view this as kind of a polity policy as opposed to more of a general principle. For instance, does Acts 6 dictate how deacons are to be chosen? If so, how are they chosen here? We're not told. The Greeks pick out seven people. How did they do that? Did they cast lots? They did in Acts 1 to get a 12th apostle. Uh, did they take volunteers and seven guys step forward? Did they have a nomination process, use Robert's Rules of Order uh, for, the for the mo making a motion about all of this and... Uh, uh, seconding that emotion, and uh, is this what they did? Did they did they vote? They take 14 guys. We're going to pick the top seven. Did they have some prophets in the group that spoke prophetically over who God had selected? We don't know. We don't know. It doesn't say. Um, should there be seven? If this is deacons, what about a church that has eight or five? 
or six or it, does there have to be seven? Here's another question. Do they have to, is a deacon only given to what we could call mercy ministry, ministry to the group most needy among them? So deacons care for widows. I believe they do. Deacons care for orphans. I believe they do. But can they do other things? Is this a passage that narrowly defines their responsibility as just mercy ministry? What do they do? So in short, the office of deacon, we, we, we get the character quality and we get that it's a serving role, but it may be it may be too much to import all of that into here, or rather to export from this account and say, this is exactly what a deacon's ministry looks like. However, there does seem to be a division of labor. There does seem to be a difference in calling, gifting, and responsibility that I think is helpful as we think about deacons. And for us, we're going to teach more about this. This is an introductory message on this. But as we develop a diaconate and formally, uh, formally uh, set aside deacons in our midst. And that's this, this principle, that Christ builds his church through different types of service. There's two types of service here. Look at verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So there is table service. That is a ministry. I'm using that metaphorically. I don't mean literally putting a plate on a table, but serving practically, in this case, serving food to the widows. Look at verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The word ministry is service. So there is service of the word. There is service of the table here. They are both given. There is ministry of the word, ministry of the table. These two work together. Prayer and preaching, word equipping, teaching, ministry and mercy ministry, practical ministry, meeting the physical needs of people ministry, taking care of physical matters. Both of those work together. And they, they certainly overlap. Someone could distribute food and have a prophetic word. Someone could distribute food and share a scripture and minister the word to someone. Absolutely. And someone like the apostles who are given to preaching and teaching would do practical things as well. They, they as well, there would be various situations where they are uh, serving in very practical needs, stacking chairs or whatever needs to happen, where they are literally taking on a physical service. So they overlap for sure, but they are a they are to work together. And when they do, the results are glorious. Because that's what happens in the church here. When they work together, everyone is on board. Everyone contributing to needs that are met. I'm assuming that the seven worked with others. That it wasn't just the seven. That we didn't go from 12 to 19. Now we've got 19 people doing everything. No, everybody is involved. But the seven were recognized, commissioned, deployed to lead out in the service of this practical need in the church. And so there is the word and prayer and the teaching and the feeding and the equipping and the uh, training and the counseling so that the word of God increases and multiplies within and outside. And there is the meeting of the practical needs so that the word of God increases on the inside and the outside. Do you see what Christ did? This is the important thing. Do you see what Christ is doing to build his church here? 
This is Jesus caring for his people. We just get one group of people that we see care for here, the widows, the Greek widows. But Jesus is caring for his people through his people so that in turn they may reach more people. Jesus is caring for his people through his people so that they in turn may reach more people. The mission is caring for the people within the church. The mission is caring for the people outside of the church. They work together, and it starts with God caring for his own people through his people. When the people of God take up a place of service, it makes a difference in both the health of the church and the expansion to the multiplication of disciples outside. We see that in this passage. It's not just a passage about deacons. It's not just a passage about the seven. It's, the pas- it's a passage about God meeting the needs of his people through his people and delegating that responsibility and equipping and delineating folks to serve his purposes. That's how Christ is building his church, through people having a place of service. Service to the tables, service of the word. Ministry of the tables, ministry of the word. All together. So I want to ask you, do you have a place of service? That's what this is about. Do you have a place of service? Do you know your place of service? Here's the real question. Do you see the value of your place of service? There's some very lofty things communicated here about distribution of food to widows. I think we tend to play that kind of thing down. It's played up significantly here. Widows are near and dear to the heart of the Father. And their being overlooked is tragic. It's serious. It defames the name of Christ. And so this is a serious matter where it's not a person with a pulse. As I said, it's, it's people with a heart representing the Father, filled with the Spirit, caring for people. Do you see the value of your place of service? Listen, this passage is not just about food distribution. It's not just about food distribution. It's about God caring for the needy in the church so that it could be said of the people of God, there was not a needy one among them. That that is a testimony of the love of God for His people. That is a testimony for, to those outside of the church who say there's not a needy one among them. And a matter of fact, people who are different culturally, are crossing borders to care for one another. There could have been an explosion here. But God rescued and cared for the widows. It's not just about food distribution. It's about God caring for the needy. It's not just about food distribution. It's about a Greek and Hebrew split in the church being averted. It's about rescuing rescuing a fracture that is spreading in the church. There is murmuring going on. This isn't just about food distribution. It's about moving from a complaining, murmuring, to everyone was pleased with what was said. It is two groups of people who are at different places that God bonds together through practical service. It's not about food distribution. It's about unity in the body of Christ where everybody has a responsibility and everybody's needs are met. That's what it's about. 
It's not just about food distribution. It's about the Word of God being proclaimed. If the apostles say, yeah, I guess we're going to do it because no one else will, then the Word of God is not taught. It is not proclaimed because they are spending their day full-time distributing food instead of praying, instead of studying, instead of declaring the Word of God to feed the people of God. This isn't about food distribution. It's about the body of Christ being strengthened by His Word. It's about people that don't know Jesus hearing the Gospel preached so that the disciples multiply. That's what this is about. This is not just about food distribution. It's about the gifts of the body of Christ being used for His glory. It's about the apostles not monopolizing ministry, but distributing ministry so that various people can serve in various ways. And the Scripture teaches us elsewhere, specifically in 1 Corinthians 12, that everyone has a gift, and everyone has a part to play, and everyone has a contribution to make to the body, and every part is needed. That's what this is about. It is about service in the body of Christ for God's glory. It's not about food distribution. It's not a passage about food distribution. It's a passage about the enemy's plans being foiled. What happens when everybody is pleased and the gospel is preached and the needy are cared for is that the devices of the evil one are shut down, that Jesus in all His glory is standing on the head of the serpent as was promised at the very beginning of the Bible, that the resurrected one is exercising dominion over the forces of evil who will always seek to divide the people of God, who will always seek to divide Christian marriages, who will always seek to divide children, Christian children from Christian parents, who will always seek to divide churches because His method is always divide and conquer. So this isn't about food distribution. This is about Jesus exercising dominion over the enemy. That's a pretty big difference when you're dropping off a plate of food if you think this is Jesus crushing the head of the serpent versus I got to go deliver some food. It's a little bit different. It's a little bit more glorious. It's a little bit more eternal. It's a little bit more powerful. It's why people who do it need to be full of the Spirit. It's not just about food distribution. It's about disciples multiplying, verse 7. More people are meeting Jesus. Why? Because the Word's going forth. Why? Because they get exposed to the church and they say there's not a needy one among them. The the Hebrews take care of the Greek widows. This This is unheard of. People are loving. People are serving. People are all glad with what's happening. The murmuring has been silenced and it has gone to everybody being pleased with what is communicated. And so there is a verbal proclamation, there is a verbal announcement of the gospel, and there is a living demonstration of what it looks like when people encounter the gospel. And it's not 12 people serving everybody, and it's not 19 people serving everybody. It's everybody in the power of the Spirit serving everybody. That's the picture. And so what happens? It's not just about food distribution. It is about the multiplication of disciples. Those who are saved, maturing in the body. Those who don't know Christ, hearing the gospel and joining. That's what it's about. It's not about food distribution. And so it's not about ushering. It's not just about ushering. I've got to get here early and help people find a seat and rope something off and collect, do a collection. It's not just about ushering. It's about something way bigger than that. It's not just about filling a slot in the children's ministry because they needed someone. It's not just about being a greeter 
because I got a decent set of teeth and I can smile. It's not just about being a greeter. It's not just about showing up for serve once a month on Saturdays to go out and minister to people in the community because, well, that's just what we do. It's not just about that. It's about something far more glorious than that. It's not just about showing up and attending community group because that's on the schedule. It's not just about showing up at a prayer meeting because we just sat down and prayed. I don't know why. It's about something much greater than that. It's about God caring for His people through His people and empowering His people to reach more people. That's what it's about. That's eternal. That's glorious. This whole passage takes the distribution of food and gives it the highest dignity and the highest honor possible because it glorifies God, it builds the body, and it multiplies disciples. It's not just about bringing a meal to the bridge. It's not just about setting up and taking down at G2. It's not just about coming early and staying late and practicing an instrument to be on the worship team. It's not about just being on the facilities team so that by the time we're all at home, have had lunch and are on the couch with a nap, somebody's up here locking up the building. But it's not just about the facilities team. It's not just about serving on the coffee team. Getting here early, brewing coffee so that people don't fall asleep in the sermon so I don't have to yell to keep everybody awake. It's not just about making coffee. It's about extending hospitality, the love of God to people, because God cares for His people through His people and empowers us to reach more people. It's about unity building and unity preservation. It's about devil-destroying acts of service in the name of Christ. It is about God-glorifying. It's about gift-deploying. It's what we were created for. It's what we were created for. It's not just doing a job. That's what this passage teaches us. I believe this passage has a lot to say for deacons. But if we run through this and say, this is the deacon manual and this is how it works, and now we've got 19 people that are ready to serve, the 12 apostles and the 7 deacons, we have totally missed the point of the passage. I think it has something to say to deacons and to us about deacons. But I think that would miss the glory of the passage. It would miss the point that the needy are cared for. It would miss the point that the division was averted and there was unity restored. It would miss the point that people moved from murmuring to being glad with what was said. It would miss the point that seven Greeks are now in leadership in the church. So it's a diverse leadership in the church. It would miss that point, which is a glorious one as well, which we didn't really talk about. It would miss the point that they were deployed and and set into ministry to serve in this way so that all ministry wasn't bottlenecked or channeled through the twelve, but it was distributed in the body. They provided some oversight to lay hands and install them, but my impression is they ran and did their job, the seven. And that ultimately, this all allowed the Word of God to increase, which allows the people of God to mature. And for disciples to multiply and even some of the least likely to come to faith the priests many became obedient to the faith so do you know what your place of service is more importantly do you see the glory of God in your place of service serving tables serving with the word a little bit of both whatever it is It's all for His glory to build His people. It's Jesus caring for His people through His people and empowering us to reach more people with Him.
just get so let's pray you've been listening to a message from grace church for more information visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org